Grace Kelly was born to a prestigious Pennsylvania family. After graduating from an elite high school, she moved to Hollywood to pursue her dream of acting. She began her career in 1951 with a small part in a movie, 14 Hours. Gary Cooper spotted her talent and starred her in a role in his next movie, High Noon. Grace would go on to star in 11 films. She played roles next to some of Hollywood's most famous leading men, Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable and Bing Crosby. Over the next few years, Kelly teamed up with Alfred Hitchcock for three films, Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, and To Catch a Thief. In 1954, she starred in Country Girl, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Actress. In just four years, Grace Kelly became the highest paid and most sought-after starlet in the industry. But by her own admission, Grace hated Hollywood. She was once quoted as saying, It's a town without pity. I know of no other place in the world where so many people suffer from nervous breakdowns, where there are so many alcoholics, neurotics, and so much unhappiness. I have many acquaintances there but few friends. In 1954, Kelly was asked to attend the Cannes Film Festival in France. One of her films was being shown. There she met Prince Rainier, ruler of the island nation of Monaco. Rainier needed a princess, and Grace Kelly thought it was time for her to settle on a husband. The two fell in love, and in 1956, they were married in a high-profile wedding on the French Riviera. And their romance wasn't your typical Hollywood fling. Kelly's family had to pay a $2 million dowry. Then at the request of her husband, the prince, Grace never acted in a film again. Additionally, in marrying Rainier, Grace was required to give up her American citizenship. After the wedding, the prince banned all Grace Kelly films in Monaco. He wanted her to be the nation's princess, not its movie star. Grace Kelly found a love for which she gave up most everything that had previously been important to her. And not just the glitz and glamour of movie stardom. She sacrificed ties to her own country, her wealth, her career, her personal success. In an interview, Grace once stated, when I, met, when I married Prince Rainier, I married the man and not what he represented or what he was. I fell in love with him without giving a thought to anything else. At the time, the astonished world was amazed that a person could find a love for which they would give up everything, their identity, their status, even their stardom. This is why Grace Kelly's storybook marriage still intrigues us. That you can be captured by a love that makes everything else obsolete. Yet in our passage, we discovered this was exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. He too found a passion worth sacrificing all that his privileged upbringing and his passionate service had afforded him. Paul laid all it aside for the greater good for something greater, for something higher. Realize in his early days, Paul previously known as Saul was one of Judaism's leading rabbis. He was a rising star. 
Like Grace Kelly, he was born to an upper crust family. Then through his own work and talent and zeal, he achieved a distinguished career. But quite unexpectedly, Paul too found a love for which he would throw it all away. He shares his story in these mor- this morning's verses. But first, we discover what triggered Paul's need to share his story. He eases into it in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul knows that his letter is about to shift gears, and this verse serves as kind of a summary statement of all that he's written to this point. You remember, the book of Philippians is all about finding joy at half-mast. As we've noted, you know that the Queen of England is in residence in her palace because her flag is flying from atop, her, atop the roof on the mast. And likewise, like the queen's flag, joy is the evidence that Jesus is residing in our hearts. Where Jesus is, there'll be joy. But the joy of Jesus flaps even when the flag flies at half-mast. Even in times of suffering and loss and grief. Notice here, Paul introduces a phrase. He's talked about rejoicing and joy throughout this letter, but here, for the first time, he couples it with the phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in the cut in pay you just received. Or rejoice in the doctor's prognosis. Or rejoice in your child's failing grade. Or rejoice in that traffic citation you got on the way to church this morning. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances, for often we can't. Life gets rough. Bad things do happen to good people, even God's people. At times, there's nothing in our circumstances that warrants any rejoicing. Remember what Paul said at the end of chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul knew that the two went hand in hand, believing and suffering. Our faith gets tried, it gets tested in the furnace of suffering. Though there might not be anything in my situation that merits my rejoicing, I can always find comfort and encouragement in the Lord. And that's why Paul doesn't say rejoice in the IRS tax audit, but rejoice in the Lord. There is some humor here that often gets pointed out. Paul seems to be acting like your typical long-winded preacher. He's teasing his readers, finally, my brethren, as if he's wrapping up. In reality, he's only halfway through the letter. He's got two more chapters to go. You've probably heard the question, what does it mean when the pastor takes off his watch and he kind of holds it up and he lays it right here on the pulpit? Answer, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he apologizes in verse 2 for what his readers will see as some repetition. For to me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, what Paul is about to teach the Philippians, he knows they've heard before. Perhaps it was the subject of a sermon that he had taught while among them. Wherever they had heard it, Paul knows they need to hear it again. You know, it's been said repetition is one of life's best teachers. In football practice, 
The team runs the same plays over and over and over again. In baseball, players field grounders every single day. A basketball player shoots free throws after each and every warm-up. The point is, is that athletes repeat the skills that are important to their sport until those skills become second nature to them. This is why I've been known to repeat a Bible study. Some truths just bear a second hearing. You need to revisit them over and over. In fact, survey the Gospels, and you'll find that our Lord Jesus was a repeater. Our Lord often knew that repetition is a good teacher. Reminds me of the pastor who preached the same sermon four weeks in a row. Same sermon, four weeks in a row. Finally, the congregation started to complain. He told him, he says, I'm going to keep preaching it until you start practicing it. Seems fair enough to me. Well, Paul had truths that he wanted to teach the Philippians that he knows they've heard before, but they need to hear again. This is what ultimately prompts Paul's testimony, but before he shares it, he issues a warning here in verse 2. Beware of dogs. And some Bible scholars believe this was actually a future prophecy intended for the 2017 college football season. That Paul is warning the Auburns and the Floridas and the Texas of the world to beware of them dogs. I think the Greek spelling is actually D-A-W-G-S. Sort of kidding. Actually, though, when Paul uses the term dogs, he's not referring to college football players. He's not even referring to those cute, cuddly little canines you keep as pets. In ancient times, dogs were wild. They were vicious predators. They were a threat to humans and a carrier of disease. No one kept dogs as pets. Here, Paul uses this term as a metaphor for the false teachers who had followed him to Philippi. They were a pack of wild dogs, carriers of contaminated doctrine. These were the guys that Paul first met in Galatia. They were false teachers called Judaizers. They believed that you were made right with God through faith in Christ plus a smorgasbord of rules and rituals and good deeds. The Judaizers taught a tag team salvation, that you needed faith in Jesus and obedience to the Mosaic law to be right with God, that faith alone was not enough. You needed to add to it some elbow grease. Once there was a legalistic lady, she told her pastor, she said, I believe the Christian life is like rowing a boat. One oar is the law. The other oar is faith in Christ. And if you drop either oar, you row in circles. You need both oars. The wise pastor replied, that's a fine illustration. There's only one problem. You don't get to heaven in a rowboat. The Judaizers advocated a mixture of faith and works, Christ and law, grace and grunt, flesh and spirit. But Paul was adamant. Righteousness is the result of Christ plus nothing. Add anything to faith in Jesus and you've turned the good news into bad news. Paul continues here in verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. 
Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. One of the derogatory names that the Jews used for the Gentiles was the term dogs. And here Paul calls these Jewish false teachers by the same denigrating title. The Judaizers taught that to be a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. That faith in Christ was not enough. You also had to follow the Jewish code and custom. And chief on their list was the rite of circumcision. Circumcision was the identifying mark or symbol that God gave to identify the Jews as belonging to him. Yet here, Paul refers to the Jews' greatest source of pride as physical mutilation. He calls it a carnage of the flesh. As he puts it, beware of the mutilation of folks that teach that a physical snip is going to tie you back up to God. That's not true. How does clipping a fold of flesh add virtue to a person's life? You see, the Jews mistook the symbol for the substance. Circumcision was intended by God as an object lesson for his people. It was an outward illustration of an inward alteration. Ultimately, the procedure pointed to a cutting away of our pride that leads to salvation. Real righteousness is transmitted by God to us spiritually, not physically. As in the rite of circumcision, God humbles a person. He cuts us down to size. He exposes our weaknesses, so we'll put our trust in him. God wants transformation, not just an operation. Rather than a work of the flesh, salvation is a gift of the Spirit. It's received through faith in Christ, not as a reward for human achievement. It's all about grace. Well, the true child of God is not the man who mutilates his body, but who by God's Spirit seeks a pure heart. Thus, the Philippians, he says, should have no confidence in the flesh. Think of the term flesh as what we are apart from God. We are spirit and flesh. Take away the spiritual part of us, and we're just flesh. What we are apart from God. On occasion, the New Testament uses the term to refer to lustful, sensual, greedy appetites of selfish humans. The word flesh just sort of sounds seedy, doesn't it? Sounds sort of sketchy and sinful, flesh. But flesh isn't always synonymous with overt evil. Paul says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. At times, Paul's flesh dressed up in its moral and Sunday best and went to church. The flesh has a religious side. It can behave according to strict religious decorum in an effort to please God. It can build up quite a resume of self-righteousness. See, the flesh often refers to man's highest and noblest efforts, but the problem is there's still man's efforts. And human effort can never make us right with God. Which brings us to Paul's testimony. His recounting of the lofty heights that he had achieved in the flesh. And yet how in an instant, boom, he gave it all up for something better. Even Grace Kelly's fairy tale pales in comparison to the love and drama and sacrifice that occurred in Paul's life. He begins his amazing story in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, 
I more so. In other words, if there had been a man who could have earned his way to God, it would have been Paul. And to prove that boast, in the next two verses, Paul takes us on a tour of his religious trophy room. All the things of which he was proud. He was circumcised the eighth day. Now today, circumcision is done for lots of reasons, but among the Jews, this was what God's law required. This was the mark that signified that the Jews belonged to God. Leviticus 12 verse 3 commanded it for every infant boy. And not just circumcision, but on the eighth day. I've read that a baby boy's blood doesn't actually begin to clot until eight days after he's born. Today, doctors, they give the infant a shot of vitamin K to sort of speed up the clotting process. But naturally speaking, it doesn't have those properties until the eighth day. Isn't it interesting? God was aware of that from the very beginning. God knew that detail. That's why he required circumcision after eight days. In the Greek, Paul's excerpt here reads, in respect to circumcision, an eight-day one. In other words, Paul was an eighth-dayer. He was a member of an elite club. This meant that he wasn't a pagan who had been converted later in life. Instead, he had been an observant Hebrew from birth. He was also of the stock of Israel. Of all the branches off the human family, Israel's 12 sons were chosen by God to be his own special people. And Paul was from that tree of the right stock. If he had logged on to Ancestry.com, he would have, rated, would have rated him a five star. He was also of the tribe of Benjamin, of Israel's sons. Benjamin was the only one born in the land of promise. The first king, Saul, was from this tribe. During the civil war that followed the days of Solomon, Benjamin was the only tribe to stay loyal to Judah and Jerusalem in the true religion. Benjamin was a faithful tribe, honored among all the 12 tribes of Israel, and Paul was a Benjamite. See, Paul summarizes his birth certificate, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had a star-studded, pure-blooded religious pedigree. No one could produce a more impeccable bloodline. For a people who trusted in their racial purity, Paul had every reason to feel righteous. See, when it came to pleasing God, Paul had been born with all the advantages, but he didn't stop there. He didn't rest on his godly genes. He was determined to add to his birthright some hard-earned righteousness. And so he writes, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Man, the word Pharisee, it means separated ones. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the first century, there were about 6,000 men who were committed to this sect of Judaism. They were strict, rigorous adherents to the law. You need to think of the Pharisees as sort of a religious gang. They had their own code of rules and rituals. Call them the lords of legalism. They viewed Jewish tradition as their turf. And if you cross their interpretation of God's law, if you refuse to toe the line that they set, be ready to rumble. Yet Paul wasn't just your rank-and-file Pharisee. Even in the midst of this strict sect, he was most zealous, he pins, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. 
See, because Jesus and his disciples condemned the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, this angered them. They took pride in being righteous, and they didn't like someone exposing their self-righteousness and their unrighteousness. This made Jesus and the early Christians a target for the Pharisees. Paul, who at the time was named Saul, he oversaw Stephen Stoning, the first Christian martyr. Remember, he conducted a terrorist campaign against the early church. In fact, Paul was on his way to Damascus with a hit squad when the Lord Jesus intercepted him. Paul sums up his ecclesiastical credentials with the boldest acclamation point the man could muster. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Wow. Surgery, pedigree, Pharisee, zealotry. According to religion, Paul had flawless credentials. And yet here is the amazing conclusion he comes to, verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. In a flash of light, in a split second on the road to Damascus, the moment Paul met Jesus, everything in his life changed. All his values were turned topsy-turvy. He saw the Savior and the glory that surrounded him. He noticed the nail holes in his hands and feet, the puncture proofs of love. And then Paul heard him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he had no answer. Suddenly, Paul realized he had been fighting God in the name of God. It was the ultimate hypocrisy. He had dared to resist God's only son, Paul had been a fool. All his proper breeding, all his religious training, all his self-righteous zeal only caused him to miss the Lord of glory and trample on his purposes. How could he have been so blind, so wrong? Paul worked a quick equation in his mind. He added up all that had been gained to him, the life that he had dedicated himself to and had valued so highly. And then he compared it to the forgiveness and acceptance and peace and joy and grace and purpose and power that Jesus now offered. And he concluded there was no comparison. What he had considered of immense value seconds before in light of Christ was now worthless. He says, I counted it loss for Christ. The word counted, it means to assess or to evaluate. He made an evaluation. The Greek philosopher Socrates had said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, Paul carefully calculated. He carefully examined his life. He added up his righteousness, and he put it on a scale, and he balanced it out with what God required, and suddenly he realized how inadequate he was, but how sufficient was the excellence that was in Christ. Reminds me of the drill sergeant in charge of the new troops. The first inspection was a disaster. One of the soldiers, he showed up particularly sloppy and disheveled. Well, the sergeant was so angry, he didn't know what to say to the soldier. So finally, he shouted out an impossible command. He said, step out here and take a look at yourself. Of course, you can't take a look at yourself without a mirror. But the glory of God had acted as Paul's mirror. 
For in light of Jesus' glory and grace, all that Paul had valued and worked to obtain now appeared trite and worthless and wasted. All his religious achievements, all the pursuits that had driven him in the past, nothing now even came close to the joy of Jesus that he had received in an instant for no other reason than God's amazing grace. In fact, Paul's religious ambitions had gotten in God's way. As long as he had depended on his own goodness to be pleasing to God, he could never be good enough. Paul had been proud of his accomplishments. They proved that he was more righteous than his peers. But then Christ came along. And up against Jesus, all his good works, all his religious deeds were nothing but rubbish. Hey, that's what he calls them. Notice his confession in verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul came to see his religious credentials, the moral medals he wore on his chest, the badges of self-righteousness that he wore as rubbish. This word rubbish, it actually means dung or manure. When Paul tried to earn a right standing with God, it was all about what he could do. It was do, do, do. But all it amounted to was do, do. (laughs) It's when he stopped trying and started trusting, that's when he received Christ's goodness. Reminds me of my kids when they were little tots. Zach and Natalie, they were close in age and size. And so Kathy would dress them up in these cute little sailor suits. She found these sailor suits, little hats and little, you know, jackets with a little flap on the back and all. They were really cute. They were adorable. They were adorable from a distance. But when you got up close to these kids at the right time, Boy, did they reek. They smelled. It was atrocious. They messed in their diapers. And you would think, how could anything that cute smell that rotten? (laughs) Yet that was Paul. He looked so adorable on the outside. But underneath, he stunk with pride and self-righteousness. Hey, it's not what you've done. But it's who you know, my friend, that makes you right with God. Jesus is our ticket to heaven. Verse 9 informs us, And being found in Him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. What makes a person pleasing to God is not a self-made righteousness earned by our own good works, It's his gift of righteousness that we receive by faith. That means are you trusting in your performance, in what you do, or are you resting in what Jesus has done? Corey Ten Boone used to say, nestle, don't wrestle. Your best efforts are manure. It's by faith we mature. And why this idea of righteousness? Why is this idea of righteousness so vital? Well, the answer is access. 
access to God. It's a means to an end. Relationship and fellowship with the God who created us are given only to those people who are righteous, who are in a right standing with God. Thus, the person who tries to earn God's favor never knows God. It's when we humble ourselves and receive his goodness by faith, then we know his presence. And this was Paul's ultimate goal. This was what he was after. This was the end game in his life. This was behind his desire for righteousness as he states in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Everybody needs a goal. Everybody needs a master passion, an ambition in their life. I like a poster I once saw of a teenage soccer player. He's on the ground. He's dirty. He's exhausted. His face is wearing a painful expression. The caption reads, no pain, no gain. No gain, no goals. No goals, no scouts. No scouts, no scholarship. No scholarship, no college. No college, no girls. No girls? Get up, man. Get up. (laughs) My point is, is that we all need an end game. And I can think of none higher, none more fulfilling of an ambition than to know Christ. A personal relationship with the king of the universe. Now that's the ultimate experience. Realize Paul is writing to these Philippians, and this is what really amazes me. He's writing after being a Christian for over 30 years. He's an old man now. He has shared numerous miracle moments with God. God has used him to heal the sick, even raise the dead. Signs and wonders have been commonplace. Yet despite it all, his number one desire in life, he still wanted to know Christ. Paul's utmost desire was to understand his master's heart, behold his glory, feel his spiritual embrace, rest in his peace, lean on his nature and his faithfulness, learn of his ways and will, taste of his mercies. Listen, even for the most seasoned saint, there is more of Jesus than you have experienced. Even after 30 years, our desire should be, Lord, I want to know you. Charles Wesley wrote in one of his hymns, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Paul had addressed kings and emperors. He ascended to the third heaven. He spoke in the tongues of men and angels, yet his greatest privilege was to know Christ. Like Grace Kelly, Paul's heart was captured by an unexpected passion. It locked him into a gravitational pull that he never escaped. He wanted more of Jesus. In fact, the deeper his experience, the greater his desire. Paul wanted to know him and the power of his resurrection. Do you want to experience this power? Do you want to experience resurrection power? I do. Imagine Jesus' cold, clammy corpse under pounds of spices, trapped in a tightly wound shroud. A body lies breathless. His limbs lay, hang limp. Eyes and ears and heart and liver have ceased to function. 
The little blood that was left lies like sludge now in his veins. The fingers of death now hold Jesus in its grip when suddenly the power of God comes upon him. An eye blinks. A heartbeat begins to stir the blood. A leg twitches and then wiggles. Muscles begin to flex. The shroud peels away and a body bounds from the grave with new life. Now, don't you want to experience this resurrection power in your life? I do. What holds you in its grip today? Is there a sin that's in your life that's keeping you in its vice grip? Do you battle an unrelenting attraction that you can't break away from that's eating you up? Here's my suggestion. Try substituting that negative addiction for a positive one. Make it your goal to know Jesus in all his fullness and in his resurrection power. See, Paul was a Jesus junkie. That's what he was. He was addicted to Jesus. He kept going back for more. For Jesus is the one positive addiction in this life. Everything else that you can get addicted to has negative consequences, but not Jesus. The more you know Jesus, the more you know his power, the freer your life becomes. But Paul doesn't end there. He desires to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul knows that the presence of Jesus, even his resurrection power, isn't the only way to know the Savior. Perhaps it's not even the best way. And this is why Paul also desires to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Hey, if you and I only went to parties together, how well would you know me? If the only times we mingle were when we were joking and laughing together, how deeply would you know my soul? Would you know my truest thoughts? They say the tightest relationships are bonded in battle. Soldiers who share the same foxhole together create ties that decades and distance can't unravel. If you want to know someone, it takes more than just cheers and chuckles. It is hardship that creates deep fellowship. Don't misunderstand. Hey, bring on the parties. I want them. I want the thrill of knowing Jesus. Let me walk in his resurrection power. I'll ride the back of a miracle as long as I'm allowed. But when the Lord knows that there is a closeness that I can't share, or when there's a part of his plan that I can't touch without a little suffering in my life, then I want to embrace the pain. When I married Kathy, I didn't just commit to date nights and vacations. I love her so much, I want to walk through the valleys with that gal. I want to go through the fire together. I want to be by her side through all of life, the good and the bad. And this is how I feel about Jesus. I not only want to know him and the power of his resurrection, I even want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. While on earth, Jesus didn't live a carefree, nonchalant, happy-go-lucky life. He carried burdens. At times he wept. 
Outside of Lazarus' tomb, he shed tears. He wept over Jerusalem's rejection of him as Messiah. Jesus cared about people. He cared deeply. He taught his disciples, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Jesus' estimation, a meaningful life was one that cared about people and that risked getting involved. And Paul was determined to follow his Lord Jesus into his caring and his sorrows and in his weeping. He would be Jesus' fellow burden bearer. And here's why most Christians have such a shallow relationship with Jesus. We follow only so far. We're among the masses who love to cheer for him when he multiplies the loaves and the fish, for we admire power. We sit on the hill above the lake and we marvel at his teachings and his peculiar parables, for we admire wisdom, but we stop short of following him into a garden like Gethsemane, into a garden of olive pressing where we might be squeezed. His suffering scares us. What if Jesus asked something painful or taxing or sacrificial of me? I love the poem by Robert Browning Hamilton. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. There is a deep fellowship we experience with the Savior when we carry his sorrows. We learn much of Jesus by carrying a bit of the burden he carries, by suffering twinges of his pain. Which brings us to the end of our text this morning. Paul finishes here in verse 11. He says, being conformed to his death, if by any means... I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is what happens over and over in a Christian's life. We are saved by the work of Jesus once and for all. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead makes us righteous. But to make sure we never forget it, God calls on us to live it out over and over in our experience. You see, as Christians, we're always dying to something. God is dealing with us about something. He calls on us to give up a sin or an impediment that's hindering our relationship with him. And when we do, we we see him resurrect in our lives something of far better value. We're always going through this death and resurrection process. Author Kent Hughes suggests the cycle of Christ's experience becomes the pattern for Paul and all serious Christians, suffering, death, resurrection. See, to hammer home the message of the gospel, God repeats its principles over and over in our lives. We suffer a loss. Our loss results in some kind of death. Then out of that death, God works a resurrection. Maybe that suffering for you has to do with business. Your company closes. Your dream dies. Yet through it, God charts a new direction for you. He resurrects new opportunity. Perhaps your suffering is a troubled relationship. It doesn't work out like you'd hoped. A love dies. 
Yet from the ashes, God resurrects a wiser you who's ready for a new start. C.S. Lewis once said, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. You see, the only way to know his resurrection power is to first experience the fellowship of his sufferings. What a story Paul could tell. When he met Jesus, he counted his star-studded righteousness as rubbish. He swapped it for a grace-gifted righteousness in Christ. And that righteousness enabled Paul to know Jesus and his power, even the fellowship of his sufferings. Like Paul, have you been captured by a passion that has overwhelmed, that has superseded your former life? A love that has turned everything else to rubbish? Do you have a story 